Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, or uh, just look in in your bulletin. Uh, It's printed there as well. You know, we've been steadily moving our way through a study of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, and today we wrap up the first half of the letter. It's divided into three, uh, the uh, six chapters are divided into three part, or two parts. Uh, the first three uh, chapters, and then the second, um, uh, the second section is chapters four, five, and six. And in the first section of this first part that we've been looking at tells us what is true about God and about God's people. This amazing work of God's redemptive love that was begun in eternity's past has, has come upon this church in Ephesus, a church that is divided and Jew and Gentile and all these animosities that are there. Uh, and then, but next week, we, Paul begins pressing this into the lives of his people. Because of what God has done, this is how we're to live. Next week, Paul begins with these words saying, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Uh, Paul begins to take the theology and put it into practice. Now, before he gets to that point, what does he do? He pauses to pray. We see here, Paul prays a superabundant prayer. The reality is this, for us to be God's people, to really be connected and unified, we need a supernatural, powerful work of God in our lives, not just individually, but together corporately. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word does show us um, your superabundant power and love uh, towards us, your ability to, to answer and solve the, the deepest problems of our lives. Uh, we thank you that this word is communicated to us. We pray for your spirit's power to be able to understand and to apply it to our lives. Be with us as your, as your people. We are desperate to hear what you would have us know about you that we may live as your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever seen the movie Remember the Titans? Of course you have, right? The, the movie is set in 1971, uh, and it's about a, a Virginia high school that goes through desegregation, and they, they hire a black football coach. And for the first time, black football students and white football students play on the same team together. It's a story about power struggles between black players and white players on the football field, off of the football field, and even in their own lives. The team goes on a summer training camp 
in which to prepare for the upcoming season. And it's full of power struggles from the beginning. The, the white quarterback quarterbacks won't throw to the black players. The, the black linemen uh, mouth off to the white linemen. And after practice, everybody sits in the cafeteria segregated. Do you remember that, don't you? The locker room is no place of respect and love. It's full of hatred and bad-mouthing and the throwing of football helmets. But eventually, the Titans have hope. One morning, the coach runs the team all the way to a cemetery, the Gettysburg Cemetery. And with the sun rising and the fog clearing, the coach explains to them that these dead soldiers were fighting the same battle that they were fighting that they hated each other and they refused to live in unity and it cost them their lives. And from there, the coach set a vision, a vision of a team where they would be united in purpose, united in respect, and perhaps even to go on and to win the state championship. It's interesting, from that point, there is harmony with, on the team. There is laughing and joking and, and camaraderie. They returned to their town and, and set before them with all sorts of challenges within the faculty and, and even still within the team itself. They were faced with a, a daunting challenge of the season ahead. How would they respond? Would they continue to work out this unity that they had begun with? Paul is dealing with a similar reality in this letter here. How will this church, made up of natural enemies, Jews and Gentiles, how will they find the strength to live lives in unity together? With all their innate differences, how can they possibly be one? What Paul does is he turns to the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God who made all things, and the triune God that, that had reached down to earth and redeemed for himself his own people, people of all different backgrounds, and has brought them together under, under one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he powerfully intercedes to them before the God who is able to superabundantly answer their prayers. Now, we know that since Paul's prayer is in Scripture, this is, a, this is a prayer for us, too. We aren't faced with quite the same struggles as Jew and Gentile in the same church. For many of us, that's kind of, what is that all about? We're not even sure. Um, but we do have differences within us that can lead to divisions, you know? Think about it. Some of us went to Ivy League schools, and some of us barely graduated high school. Some here are doctors or attorneys or managing directors, and others are school teachers and office administrations and construction workers. Some of you here have lived here all of your life. Your great, 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 I don't know how many greats, grandparents came here on that ship. And, and this, this is your community. And, and you get really frustrated and offended when all these other people have moved in to the Hamptons. You get really frustrated at those so-called city people. Some of you here are those so-called city people. And you come out here and there's this natural animosity <clears throat> And, um, and we, we, are, we're, we're, we come out of these cultural differences, and, and God has brought us here together to be one church. Check this out, though, and think about this, though. What if we actually were all like 
from the same like genetic stock. You know, we all we all been here for a long, long time, or we all just moved here. We're all culturally the same. We all have the same educational backgrounds. We all listen to the same music and, and like to go to the same restaurants. And we just kind of were just pretty much homogeneous. Would 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 Paul's prayer still be important for us? Of course it would. Because you see, what we all share in common, even though we have great differences, is, is that we're, we're all affected by the fall. We're, we're all sinners at heart. We're all people who, who um, have a tendency uh, to back away from others, a tendency to, to, to think selfishly, tendencies to overreact or underreact. Uh, we could all be the same, and yet we'd still need this prayer of Paul's. We're desperate for its application in our lives this morning. What we're going to see this morning is this. Because God is super abundantly powerful to bring about his glory in us, we must cry out for that work to be done in us. This prayer is our prayer as well. We're going to divide the prayer into three parts. We're going to look at the position and the petition and then the praise. Position, petition, and praise. First, the position. Paul places himself where? Before the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, the redeemer of all mankind, because he alone is able to supply our needs. Paul begins his prayer with what words? These three words. For this reason. All prayer begins with a reason, doesn't it? Perhaps an anxiety, perhaps a desire to be thankful perhaps a concern for a loved one, uh, perhaps a burden of the day, perhaps some sin that needs to be confessed. All prayer begins with a reason. Some people do not pray before they, because they do, do not see any reason for it. Either there is no God, or if there is a God, why would he even care about my petty demands? He's so much busier than all that. I'm not going to bother God with my needs, so people say. Paul's prayer, his position of prayer, should challenge us. Paul boldly prays to his Heavenly Father. He prays with great concerns for these other people's needs. And he believes that God is able to powerfully do more than he can even ask. And the reason that Paul is praying is because he has seen and explained how God has united them in Christ. And yet he knows the challenges ahead. He knows how much these people are in need of God to powerfully work in their lives. And so he, his position is not just before God, but he comes with great fervency of emotion. Did you read where he says, he says, I bow my knees. Now, for much of us, well, yeah, of course you get on your knees and you pray. But, but for a Jew, who Paul, Paul was a Jew uh, who became a Christian, and for all the early Christians, the, the typical mode of prayer was to, was to be standing up. In Scripture, in the Old Testament, we do see where people do pray on their knees or sometimes lay prostrate on the ground. And, and these are in circumstances of, of great dire, of, of dire need, of, of great zeal and longing on a part of the person who's, who's praying. What we see here is Paul is saying, this is such a great need. I am on my knees uh, before the maker of heaven and earth. Paul also is in a position of reverence. It says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Jesus taught us to pray how? Our Father, who art in heaven. 
You know, this ancient, uh, in the ancient world, the word father, yes, it, it, it implied some intimacy, but it was also a term that had overtones of dignity and, and authority. The father not only sought the good of his family, but he ruled on behalf of the clan. He cared for their needs. He was in a position of authority and of power. And so what we see here is the dignity and the authority of the one to whom Paul is praying is he's the, the father of, the, of all the earth. He, there is none greater than God Almighty. And so Paul is in a position of reverence as he prays. And then there's the alignment of his prayer. I know we're covering a lot of things. If you're taking notes, you might be, hey, I might get a little tired here. But in verse 16, we see his alignment. It says, according to the riches of his glory. Our prayers are always to be aligned with God's glorious plans. Jesus taught us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Unfortunately, we often pray for our glorious plans to be done on earth. It's, uh, well, do you guys like golden retrievers? You like golden retrievers, don't you? Golden retrievers are the third most popular dog in America. First pop, most popular, Labrador retrievers. And then the second one, I was a little surprised, uh, American Kennel Society or whatever they say, it's the, it's the German Shepherd is the second most popular dog. And then the golden retriever. Golden retrievers are great. Um, you know, they, they, they're so eager to please us. They always seem to be like smiling, right? They, they come up to you and they're shaking around. They're just ready to do something for you. And then you throw a stick and you say, you say, fetch. The dog runs with great delight and brings it back to you. You know, unfortunately, often we pray golden retriever prayers, don't we? That God would be the one who just goes and gets stuff for us. That God is the one who sits around at our side and he's the one who's at our beck and call. And he, he goes out and he's just to do what we want him to do for us, for our, for our glory. Paul challenges us here. This is not how Paul prays. In fact, Paul kind of turns the table. We should be more, well, I'm not going to say that, but we should more have that position of, of eagerness to please our Heavenly Father, to be at His beck and call, to, to love and, to, and desire to, to, to be in His presence and to do whatever He would call for us to do with our lives, which are precious and really truly can amount to, to great things for Him and His kingdom. That's the position we see in Paul. Now for the petition. Paul has two main requests that are closely related. Verses 16 and 17, there's a petition for heart transformation. And then in verses 18 and 19, there's a petition for head transformation. First, the heart transformation. In verse 16, Paul prays that the Holy Spirit would transform their inner beings. And then in verse 17, he prays that God, excuse me, that, that Christ would dwell in their hearts, the inner being and heart. These are really saying, talking about the same thing, the heart of the, of the human being. When, when the Bible speaks of the heart, it, uh, is, you know, it, it's referring to our will or, or if you've got a big vocabulary, uh, our volitional seat. Right. That which in us um, where where we make decisions and our decisions lead to the desires and desires lead to to actions. Have you ever done something that in your head you knew you shouldn't have done? And you did it anyway. That harsh word, that quick response, that, 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 that um, you know there was a need and, and you didn't raise your hand. And, and, and why did you do that? 
It's because your heart's powerful. It's a volitional seed. It's where, it's where all of your, of your uh, innermost being of who you are it, it acts and, and works and, 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 and the things that you do flow out of your heart. Paul is praying here um, that we would have something done with our hearts. The Bible often, modern man thinks our hearts, our hearts are great. There's maybe just a few things wrong. I could fix them myself. But here's what God says to the prophet Jeremiah. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Yeah. So Paul prays that God would renovate our hearts. You guys watch HGTV? I mean, I'm in a rental home, and I still watch that show. It's kind of uh, there's those channels. It's kind of fun to see all the renovations they do. There's one series of shows called Crashers. It's like a, like kitchen crashers and bathroom crashers and landscape crashers. And what happens is is um, the, the the host goes to like a really giant home improvement store, and he's looking for someone who's got a messed up like kitchen or something. This person goes in. They're just getting a sink or a faucet, and they're just there just to pick up one little thing, a simple job, and and they end up going home uh, with the host to their house, and they get an entire kitchen remodeling job. The host shows up later with these awesome, glorious plans. He shows up with all the materials, and he shows up with a powerful crew to get it all done. And then you see the people. He, he tries to get them involved, the homeowners, a little bit, right? But really, their, their big job is to kind of stay out of the way, right? Just like kitchen crashers who, who come with their glorious plans and powerful work crews to complete the job, so too we are in need of God to come and do this glorious work in us. Only the triune God of the universe with his glorious plans to renew and restore mankind, to, to create a church of his people from various backgrounds, only he is capable of, of transforming our inner beings, transforming our hearts. Paul says that this is a work of the Holy Spirit. He says that in verse 16. Then in verse 17, he says, it is Christ who dwells in us. It's kind of like, well, what is it? Is it the Holy Spirit or Christ? Well, for Paul, it's like one and the same thing. The Spirit of God. That, remember, Christ said he would send his Spirit. It's the Spirit of Christ. And the Holy Spirit's work is to do what? Press Christ into our lives more and more, deep into our souls, into our hearts. So he prays that the church would be strengthened by the power in its inner being through the Holy Spirit. This is a work that God must do. We see it in the grammar of this text. This verb, to be strengthened, it's in the passive voice. If you've studied languages, the passive voice is something that's done to you. It's not you doing it. This is God's work done to you. Our hearts are, 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 um, are, are, our hearts are so deceitful, we need God to do the work to renovate our hearts. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit is powerful. He's capable of doing this work. In verse 17, the the result is, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Commentators point out that what Paul is saying here is that this work of God in us would, would cause Christ to rule and to reign more and more in our hearts the place where we need him to reign most. We sang earlier, we sang sang, um, how sad our state, where we sang, Stretch out thine arm, victorious king, my reigning sins subdue. Drive the old dragon from his seat, that's the seat of your heart, 
with all his hellish crew. We, we need Christ to do this work. Paul is praying for that, that the good king, Lord Jesus, would reign on our hearts, in our hearts. You know, we cannot produce this divine work in us. It's not like we can walk out of here uh, this morning and say, you know what, I need to be a kinder, gentler person. I need not to react so quickly to all of these things that happen in my life. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to control myself. It's great that you have that idea, all right? But what we really need is Christ to do this work, the Holy Spirit to do this transforming work in our lives. And so we need to be praying to God that he would do this work for us. And the effect of this work is what? In verse 17, is that we as the body of Christ will be what? Rooted and grounded in love. Paul's used this imagery before, right? Roots. Think about plants. This is the time of year. It's spring when they start to, the roots start to come alive and they start soaking in the water and bringing up the nutrients. Hopefully there's nutrients in the soil there, right? Oh, that the, that the roots of, of our church here uh, would be soaking in and nourishing um, ourselves from, from, the, from the, the very love of Christ. May that, may that be what we draw upon as a church. And, and, and that we would be, be grounded. That's a term of, for an architectural term of, of being uh, set on a foundation. Earlier we saw that the foundation is Christ. That, uh, here we see that there will be grounded on Christ and his love. That as a church, that's our surest foundation. Our only foundation is to be Christ and his love for us. That's for the heart. Now for the head, verses 18 and 19, we see that. You know, things that captivate our heads tend to inform our hearts a little bit, right? Even though our hearts kind of do what they want to do and vice versa. Paul prays that to the father that this church would have the strength to comprehend it's intellectual exercise, right? To comprehend, uh, to understand the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. It's a paradox, isn't it? Remember last week we had the, the paradox of, of, of us um, of sharing the gospel is really inviting people to search out the unsearchable riches of Christ, right? That is, the more you get to know Christ and his riches towards you, uh, the more you find is there. It's inexhaustible. So, too, with this um, knowledge of of God's love for us. And it's true, isn't it? The more you spend time comprehending God's love for you in Christ Jesus, the more it astounds you and amazes you, the more you realize that there's more for you to know. Paul says in verse 18, he prays for the strength that the believers may comprehend the breadth of and the length, and the height, and the, and the depths of God's love for us. What does he mean by these terms? Is he saying that sometimes we're just, just to focus on the breadth? Oh, you've got just a great breadth of love, God. And, and the other times, just to think about the height of his love. All right, today I'm just going to focus on your, the height of your love, God. No, that's not what he's getting at. These are all, uh, these are all a unity. What, what Paul is trying to get at here is that, is that we are to meditate. Um, uh, these, all ref, these all reflect the, the great... Uh, size of God's love for us. They all speak to the enormity of God's love for us. As soon as you begin to try to comprehend God's love for you, uh, you come to realize that you can't explore fully the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height of God's love for us. 
And it's true, when we come to the cross, we see the enormity of God's love for us. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Ponder that. I mean, that's the, the, the enormity of God's love for us. God loves sinners through his Son, Jesus. Verse 18, Paul prays that this supernatural strength for us as his church to comprehend this incomprehensible love. And then in verse 19, Paul prays that we may know the love of Christ that surpasses no ability. I made that word up. All right. There's no such word as no ability. But there's there's this love of Christ that that the more we seek to know it, the, the, the more we need to know about it. Please understand what what Paul is doing here, though. He's not merely saying an intellectual knowledge of God's love for us. One of the things the Greeks uh, always had a problem with is they were into knowledge, right? Not so much relationships. They were into the gnosis, knowing of things. Paul knew the danger. So he speaks here of, of knowing this love of God, not just in an intellectual way, but in an experiential way. And think about it. The love of God isn't just something for us to know intellectually. It's something for us to experience. Think about this, too. What if God was never demonstrated his love in any way? He never showed us his love. It was just a, an intellectual exercise in his mind. God's up in heaven, he's looking down on earth, and he's seeing mankind and our troubles and our brokenness and our fallenness. And he's looking down, he's like, I'm a loving God. Love is great. What if he did not act in love? What if he did not demonstrate his love? See, love is something that we're to experience. Paul wrote elsewhere, he said this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Are you listening? How does God demonstrate his love for us? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Don't quickly dismiss that. Because in just trying to ponder that, we come to, come to see that, that God's love really is an unknowable love because it, it blows our minds away. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love for us is an unconditional love. The word love here in our text in the Greek is the word agape. There's a number of different Greek words for love. This agape love is unconditional love. God looks at us even while we were still sinners. He sent his son Christ to die for us. For us, we can't even figure that out. We hold grudges so easily, you know. We might, we might forgive somebody something if we know that in the end it's going to help us out, right? You know, we might bear with somebody who's a little difficult uh, when we know that they've got, you know, they got the good tea times at the nice golf course once a year, right? I mean, that's, that's how we operate. Our love is conditional, right? But here's the deal. If, if you have peace with God through Jesus Christ, he, he was looking at you while you were still a sinner and says, you know what, I'm pledging to love this person through my son. You did not earn this relationship with God. This is, this is the way God thinks and acts towards sinners like you and me. God demonstrates his love towards us. And so Paul wants us to know this love. And it can't be known just intellectually, First off, you've got to know it personally. Do you personally know this love of God towards sinners? Do you? Not just on an intellectual level. Yeah, I guess some people are sinners and they need a Savior. You know, no, but do you know that? You need to know that. You'll have no peace with God apart from having that relational knowing. 
I encourage you to, to, to receive that love of God through Jesus Christ. But also for us here, I think for most of us here, is, is that this knowledge of God's love that we are to come to know is to be done in community. I know I've been saying a lot of that lately. This whole letter is about the church living out our calling to be one in Christ. So, but I'm not just making that up here. Look at verse 18. Paul prays that, uh, that they would comprehend with all the saints what is the love of God to us in Christ. To comprehend with all the saints. This is a communal activity for us. This is not you just at home going, God is loving. He is so good. This is us as a community with all the saints experiencing this love together. Love is relational. Love requires community. Love is to be experienced with all the saints. Some of you are like, yeah, but some of those people are just weird. Yeah, all right, I get it. You know, I'm weird a lot, you know. Some of these people, I know somebody, they, 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 they screw me over in a business deal. I don't like seeing that person on Sunday. Yeah, but God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That changes the way in which you see another person. Grace Church, we need to change what we're rooted in. We need to change what we're grounded in. We need to be rooted in this unconditional love that we have in Christ Jesus. So rooted in it that it soaks into us, not just individually, but as a, as a people that this would be so infused in our lives that we're, that we're so quick to offer pardon, so quick to not jump to conclusions, so quick to go out of our way to, to, to spend time with someone who, yes, is different than you or maybe hard to work with or needy. This is God's love. This is what we're to be built upon as his church. Love isn't just an intellectual reality, it's a relational reality. And it requires community for us to know this love of God. Because here's what's going to happen. You're going to be challenged in a situation where you find yourself having such a difficulty loving somebody that Christ's love has to break in, into your life, and causes a transformation of your heart. And then you go, ah, now I know the love of Christ. I'm experiencing it right now as I'm called to love somebody who is unlovable. Did you see why this is a huge prayer? I mean, you see why this is a super abundant prayer? This is a work of the heart that you and I cannot change. We need God to do this work in us. That's why Paul is praying with great zeal and fervency. Grace Church, we need to be praying like this. Let's not pray petty little golden retriever prayers as God's people. Let's pray big, powerful prayers that God would unite us, that we live for his glory, that we'd be transformed at the root level, at the heart level. Here's the outcome. The outcome's wonderful. Look at verse 19. Underline that, unless you have a pew Bible. <laughs> That you may be filled with the fullness of God. Wow, that just can't be right. That's a typo, right? You know, a lot of people turn to life coaches uh, to help them and to get to get on track and to have a great life and all that. Well, if you find yourself uh, interviewing life coaches, 
Ask them if they can promise to transform you into the fullness of God himself. That's the promise of the gospel. God in his grace has pledged to transform us into the image of his son. This is his work. Yeah, it won't fully come until Christ returns. We know that. So let's just wait until then. No, this love is for us to know now. Why wait? Why, why, why wait till later to have it transform us? Yes, when Christ returns in an instant, we'll be transformed in the beautiness and holiness that which we've longed for, but never really fully even fathomed in our head. We're going to experience that. So let this work begin today. That's what we're praying for. As, as the body of Christ, we are filled with Christ's spirit. To know and to love Christ, we, we gather as, as his community and we're filled with this fullness of God. We grow in Christ's likeness. We truly do. This isn't a myth. It's not made up stuff. As we live out the gospel together, we become filled more and more with the beauty of Christ, with the glory of God. It's something we experience as his people. It's something that we shine into our community. And this is God's hope for us. Did you believe that? This is God's hope for this church. That's a big prayer, right? I mean, that's crazy stuff to be asking for. Seems to be stuff outside of the box, you know, beyond what we normally even would ask or think of. I'm where I got that. All right. That's the, that's the position and the petition. Now for the praise. The praise. Paul ends his prayer in verses 20 and 21 with a doxology or, or words of praise. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You know, often what keeps us from prayer is unbelief. We do not believe that God is able, that he has the power to do what we are asking him to do. You know, the scholar Armitage Robinson said this about this prayer that Paul has here. He says, no prayer that has ever been framed has uttered a bolder request. That's a pretty bold request that Paul is praying here. Paul praises, though, that, that God is able to powerfully work this into our lives. In fact, God is the superabundant provider of his people. Paul praises God that he's able to do far more than we can ask or think. NIV translates it, ask or imagine. It's all the same thing. The point is this. You cannot out-request God's capacity. You cannot out-request God's capacity. It's impossible. Now, some of you may be thinking, though, but Mark, I've, I've prayed and I, I didn't get an answer. A couple of things. One, you did get an answer. You just didn't get a yes, right? You, you, you got a no or a not yet, right? And two... Though our requests cannot outstrip God's capacity, our requests must be in line with God's glorious will and plan. This prayer began with a caveat 
according to the riches of his glory. And it ends with what? Glory. To him be the glory in the church. Our prayers are to be, as Jesus said, kingdom prayers in which God's will be done. We are to pray for our daily bread, not necessarily for a timeshare at Club Med. You know, you get the point. Our prayers must be in line with his will. And some may be thinking, well, but if everything has worked out according to God's plan and it's foreordained before even time began, well, why, why, why even pray? You know, it's going to be done. Well, first we see Paul. Paul believes in the sovereignty of God, that God has foreordained everything that comes into, into, into existence and, and experience here on earth. And yet he, he prays this bold prayer. And second, what we need to see is that the sovereign plans of God must in some way be foreordained because of our prayers, right? In other words, God's plans are written in stone and that everything happens according to plan, but our prayers are actually the cause for which God has written them in stone. I know I may be losing a few there. All right. Is it noon yet? It's not even noon. We haven't had a cup of coffee yet. Um, our bulletin insert, there's a, there's a little article by John Piper. It's titled Prayer and Predestination. It's a dialogue between two imaginary characters. I'm not going to read it. Let me just summarize it. The two imaginary characters are prayerless and prayerful. Prayerless wonders, why even pray if God does what is according to his plan and which is settled before time began? Right? Why even if God has done this? Well, Paraphil points out that all events have a cause. All of God's events on earth have a cause. And some of the events that are caused on earth happen because people prayed for them. God, who lives outside of time and space, hears our prayers. And they have the ability to cause him to act in eternity past to foreordain the answers to our prayers in the present. If that lost you, God hears our prayers and he works it out. He's powerful to do that. Uh, Just as his riches of Christ are insearchable, just as his love is beyond comprehending, so are his ways higher than our ways. The things that he does, we can't even understand at times. So we, we know that God foreordains things and we know that everything he foreordains comes to pass. And yet we see Paul, who believes that, praying with great zeal. We see Jesus, who believes that, praying with great zeal, that God would act in time and space according to his glorious plans and purposes. So Grace Church, does this give you encouragement to pray? I hope it does. One of the hopes that I have as your pastor is that we would grow as a church in our zeal and longing for prayer. That our prayer nights that we have once a month would be filled with people who believe this and who want to pray big kingdom building prayers for our church and for our community. Who will say, not thy will, but thine be done, and then pray with great zeal that the things that we would do would bring glory and honor to God.
had more I wanted to say. Let's just end with that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this amazing prayer. We thank you that, um, that this prayer is ours. Um, it's a prayer for us. It's a prayer for us to pray. Father, I pray that we would see um, a greater need for you to intercede on our behalf, that we have a great need for our hearts to be renovated, not a partial renovation, but all of it cleansed and cleaned, that Christ would be properly seated on the thrones of our hearts, uh, that our lives wouldn't be wrapped up in petty little things that we don't get or petty differences between us and other Christians, but rather that we would be rooted in your great love for us, which you demonstrated to us as you forgive us in Christ Jesus. We pray for your power in us. We pray that we would, as a church, know this, not just intellectually, but uh, in community as we work this out in our daily lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.